you have a Bible, I would love for you to open up to 2 Corinthians 4 and also put a bookmark, if you will, in 2 Kings 7. So 2 Corinthians 4 is going to be our main text tonight. We're going to be turning back to 2 Kings 7 for a short read of a familiar story that I think is fitting to bring into the uh, conversation with the topic at hand, with the text at hand. Uh, so as you find your places, we'll open up to 2 Corinthians 4. First off, uh, just to, to kind of catch us up and set the table for what we're going to be talking about tonight, because again, all these chapters are connected and one chapter leads to another. Uh, Paul has just spent chapter 3, and, and if you missed last week's message, I encourage you to go back and check it out. I had fun preaching it. I think it was a really good conversation, really good topic uh, about the superiority of the new covenant compared to the old covenant. Paul is uh, dealing with some, some opponents, uh, some uh, people called Judaizers. They were people that believed in Jesus but were still holding on to Judaism, to the religion of the old covenant. Uh, these Judaizers were trying to muddy the message, seeking to hold Christianity back by saddling it with Judaism. The very reason why the Old Testament confesses that Judaism couldn't save people, uh, these Judaizers were trying to present those, those things from the Old Covenant as essential and fundamental to Christianity. So Paul is, is a little rattled. Uh, he's more than rattled. He's very upset because the entire premise of the gospel is that Jesus is everything that we need. Uh, the Old Testament is God's Word. It supports the purpose of, of the New Testament. It leads us to the New Testament. It exclaims that Jesus is the only one that can save because it makes it very clear that religion can't save. It shows how unable religion is uh, at providing salvation. Uh, but again, the Old Testament, Paul's not arguing that we shouldn't read it. By all means, he says to us that Christ is on every page. The message of the gospel is on every page because those stories of old point us to what Jesus provides us. But as far as the religious prescriptions, as far as the rituals and the customs of the Old Covenant, uh, they have no value. They serve no saving purpose. So Paul spins chapter 3 comparing the, the experience that you have under the Old Covenant with what you have in the New Covenant. Uh, he compares Moses on Mount Sinai to us in Christ, and you might think, "Wow, you know that's a, that's pretty uh, a, you know rare air to be associated with Moses." I mean, the Jews would say Moses is the guy. Moses was closer to God than anybody. But Paul says, Paul says that every Christian is far closer to God than Moses ever thought about being. Which is a pretty big thing to say because the Bible says Moses was God's friend. The Bible says that Moses talked to God as he was a friend of God. But Paul says, you know that Moses on the mountain, under the Old Covenant, embodying the Old Covenant, he was only able to get a glimpse of the backside of God's glory. The best religion can get you is a glimpse of the backside of God's glory. The entire system is meant to expose how insufficient religion is. But now in Christ... We can behold the fullness of God's glory. Isn't that incredible? John 1.18 says that no one has seen God, yet we who are in Christ have beheld the fullness of him face to face. 
That's Paul's argument in chapter 3, and that's really the argument of the New Testament. The old way, that there's a veil over your face. If you do it the religious way, no matter how good you feel about what you bring to the table, you've still got a veil over your face. You're still seeing through a glass darkly. This was made clear before Moses. Remember, remember how the Bible starts out when the fall happens. Two people come to God. One comes by the works of his hands. One comes by the blood of the lamb. And what did God say to Cain? I reject your offering because your works will never reconcile you to me. Yet it was Abel who brought the lamb to God because he was trusting in the lamb that God would provide one day. God has rejected religion since the very beginning, yet we still try to make it work our way with our hands. It takes the work of God to, to redeem us. It takes the covering provided by God. Paul talks about things like liberty and freedom and transformation and glory from God in our hearts in chapter 3 and in chapter 4. It's very clear that only through Christ can we have the personal, dynamic, liberating, transforming relationship with God. There is no other way to know God personal, personally in, in a transforming relationship than through Jesus Christ based on what he has done for us. So now, whereas chapter 3 was Paul defending his work, chapter 3 is Paul arguing against his critics, arguing against the religious opponents, Chapter 4, he takes a different approach. He turns away from the opponents of his ministry to the people that he is building up in ministry, to the church members that he is raising up, to all of his fellow Christians, to people like us, people like me and you. Uh, he turns to them, and he's going to explain to us why he's so motivated at his work, and he's going to attempt to recruit and encourage more of us to join in. So he's defended his ministry. Now he's going to talk about why he's so motivated in it and why he is, he thinks that you, yes, you, should join him in this ministry for Jesus. So the premise is simple. If Christianity is the only way, if we have experienced God through Christ and we know the exclusive way, then we have a calling and we have an obligation to go to the world. Chapter 4, verse 1, he says, Therefore, so he just said, hey, we have an unveiled face. We've got the glory of God transforming us, saving us, liberating us through Christ alone. Therefore, since we have this ministry... And you say, well, I, I didn't sign up for ministry. I'm just, a, I'm just here to listen. I'm just here to, oh, I'm just here to, 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 to enjoy it. But Paul says, hey, we have a ministry. We all have a ministry. Since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. So there's two, two things here. First, he informs us that we have a ministry, and he tells us why we have a ministry, and then he's going to encourage us not to get frustrated in our ministry. So I want to focus on that first part to get, to get us started. You and I have a ministry by the mercy of God. People come to me all the time, and they ask questions like this. What do I have to do as a Christian, not to become a Christian, but since I'm a Christian, what do I got to do to make sure I keep God happy? What do I got to do to make sure I'm checking all the boxes? What, what is God expecting of me? Now, first off, 
we don't keep God happy. Nothing I do, nothing you do, nothing we do, or, not, or nothing we don't do keeps God happy. Jesus keeps God happy for us. We are in Christ. He takes care of that. I know that's, technic- that's a technicality. That's a big deal, though. Because, you know, we, we, we are saved through Christ. But since we are saved, we obviously have a ministry, have a, have a purpose to serve in the kingdom of, of God. People come to me and they, they say, what do I have to do? And that tells me, and, and I'm not, I know I'm being a little bit semantic here with my words, but I, I think this is, really exposes a lot of, lot of people uh, wh- how little they know or, or how wrong some of the beliefs they have about Christianity. A lot of people ask the question, what do I have to do as a Christian? Uh, because they see Christianity as a religion. They see it as something, it's a chore, there's rituals, there's obligations, but really all they want to do is keep God happy. They show up on Sundays because they want to keep God at the altar, and they want to make sure he doesn't follow them home to mess up what they've got going on, because we just want to kind of have a good life and make sure that we go to heaven when we die. That's what most of us are really are all about. Uh, but if you think that, that if the question you're asking is, what do I have to do to make sure I keep God happy, that tells me that somebody did a bad job of, of explaining Christianity to you, and somebody did a bad job at leading you to Jesus. Uh, because if you really know Jesus, like you can know Jesus, in the liberty and transforming glory that God offers us, your response to salvation should not be what do I have to do it should be what do I get to do as a Christian and and again you say well Justin aren't you just being picky with the words words matter Words matter, and they tell, they expose what our motives are in our hearts. So if your question is, man, what do I got to do to make sure I keep God happy? If that's the question you're asking, then can I introduce you to a better Jesus than you've been introduced to? Because it doesn't have to be a, a chore or a burden. If you know Christ like you can know Christ, the question should be, what do I get to do? Now that I've been saved, what do I get to do in the liberty and the grace of God since I'm no longer in a dead religion, but I'm in a relationship with Jesus? What do I get to do now that I am a Christian? Because I didn't get to do this before I got saved. I couldn't do this before I got saved. Now that I'm saved, I've got access to new life and I want to make the most of it. That should be our question. That should be our desire. What do I get to do? So what does Paul say? Tell us in this first verse. We are privileged to be in this ministry, a part of the church of God, a part of the kingdom of God. We are privileged to be in the ministry because of God's mercy. Now, I know in our country, there's a little pushback when people say that some are privileged and some aren't privileged. But you better believe it when it comes to those that know Jesus, those that are saved. We are absolutely privileged privilege to know him and to have heard his gospel and been afforded this opportunity to be saved and have our sins forgiven and have our lives changed. We are highly privileged and we should never forget that. You know what privilege means? It means you're in a status that you did not earn. You have a status that you do not deserve that was given to you by someone above you. Church, we are privileged in Christ. I don't care what religion has taught us, no matter how much money I've given, how much good I've done, how good I dress on Sundays, I am here because of the mercy of God. I am not here because of my own works. 
Now, you've heard this before. Mercy holds back what we deserve from God so that we can receive the grace we do not deserve from God. Mercy holds back what we do deserve so that we can receive what we don't deserve. So let's focus on what Paul is saying here. We have a ministry because we have received the mercy of God. So what this is trying to do is wake us up and make us realize, wow, I have a privileged place in Christ. I have been given the mercy I don't, I, I, to, to hold back the judgment I deserve. I have been saved by the mercy of God, not because of something I did, but because of something that he did. Since I've been given this mercy, I have a ministry to be a part of. Now, I I think the best way to punctuate this message is to let a story in the Old Testament do the talking. You've heard me preach this before. I just love this story so much. I think it's good for us to see with our own eyes and read uh, in in our Bibles. So if you keep your bookmark here in 2 Corinthians, go back with me to 2 Kings. 2 Kings 7, just a short read. We're going to read through this real quickly, but the basic... Uh, premise of this chapter is, if you've never heard it before, never read it before, um, Israel is in a bad place. There's a famine. They're surrounded by the Syrian army. The Syrian army has besieged the capital city of Samaria. Uh, a besiege, uh, a siege of a city would basically choke it out. Uh, there was no going in. There was no coming out. So eventually they run out of supplies. Eventually they run out of food. And if there's a famine inside the city, everyone's going to start dying. And if you go out of the city, you've got to surrender to the armies if you're going to make it past the, past the, the surrounding uh, um, area. So the, the short story is that the king of Israel is stubborn uh, about surrendering to God. God has told them through Elisha the prophet that, that uh, hey, unless you turn to me, I'm not going to relent from this, this bad situation that you're in. So uh, the story goes that Elisha the prophet comes to the king and basically tells them in chapter 7 verse 1, um, he, he gives them a word that sounds a little bit, a little bit obscure to us, but it's, it, it's emphasizing how bad the situation's getting. He says to them, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, tomorrow about this time, a seah of fine flour shall be sold for a shekel and two seahs of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. So Elisha says, hey y'all, I've got some good news. I know that it's, everything's been inflated and it's been costing an arm and a leg to buy anything. Well, God's about to do something that's going to change all that. It's going to come through a miraculous means, but it's going to happen. Now the officer who was beside the king leaned in in verse 2 and answered the man of God and said, look, if the Lord could make the windows of heaven, uh, could make the windows of heaven open up, could this be a thing? In fact, he responds, you shall see it with your eyes, but you shall not eat of it. So essentially, Elisha's been praying, the people have been praying for mercy. God's about to show mercy to the nation of Israel, but the way he's going to bring the mercy is through an unexpected means. So verse 3. Now there were four lepers at the entrance of the gate, and they said to one another, why are, you, why are we sitting here until we die? If we say we shall enter the city, the, fa- the famine in this city, uh, the famine is in this city, and we shall die there. If we sit here, and we die also. Now therefore, come and let us surrender to the army of the Syrians. 
if they keep us alive, we shall live, and if they kill us, we shall only die. So, meanwhile, back in the, the, the common area, back in the streets of the city, there's four lepers that are sitting out, and they can't even get into the city, you know, the greater part of the city, because they're outcasts. They're sitting out the gates of the city thinking, okay, if we stay here, we're going to die. If we leave here, probably going to die anyway, so why don't we take at least to take a chance, go to the Syrian army, and surrender to them, and beg for some mercy. So verse 5, they rose at twilight to go to the camp of the Syrians, and when they had come to the outskirts of the Syrian camp, to their surprise, no one was there. And this camp had been out there for months and months and months, just choking out the city. But the scripture says, the Lord had called the army of the Syrians to hear the noise of chariots and noise of horses, the noise of a great army, so that they said to one another, look, the king of Israel has hired us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of the Egyptians to attack us. So the Syrians are spooked, and they flee. They arose, and they fled at twilight, and left the camp intact. Tents, horses, donkeys, they fled for their lives. So here comes these lepers planning to surrender to the armies of the Syrians, and they find at the outskirts of the camp, they went into one tent and ate and drank and carried from it silver and gold and clothing and went and hid them. Then they came back and entered another tent. So they spend all night long just taking droves of gold and silver and food and clothing uh, back and forth from this camp of the Syrians to their own little outskirt, uh, own little outpost. And it says they carried it from here and there and they went and hid it because, hey, we hit the lottery. So then they've been, you know, they've been reveling all night long. They've been eating and drinking and just having a good time. And then it hits them. They said to one another, we are not doing right. This is a day of good news. If we remain silent, and we remain silent, if we wait until morning, some punishment will come upon us. Now therefore, come and let us go and tell the king's household. I don't think there's a greater story in the Bible that punctuates how our response should be to hearing the gospel should be. The lepers we're sitting there reveling in this good news and reveling in this, this gift and this act of mercy. And it dawned on them, we cannot keep this to ourselves. Even though the very city we left didn't care about us, didn't like us, and wanted to exile us, something in them thought this moment is too big for us to keep to ourselves. Church, that, that tells us what mercy should do to all of us. Mercy. These guys understood mercy. They received it and they were compelled to extend it. I've said it before and it bears repeating. Mercy received will lead to mercy extended. Mercy received leads to mercy extended. If somebody does not extend mercy, then they don't understand that mercy is what has saved them. If someone does not extend mercy, then they don't see their relationship as rooted in mercy as simple as that. And, and, and I, I believe there's sincere responses to this that maybe sound something like this. Maybe you say, Justin, what do you say to that believer? And maybe you're that believer. What do you say to that believer who isn't motivated to share mercy and doesn't feel compelled to but still believes in Jesus and, and, and claims to be saved? What do you say to that person who says they're saved but they have no desire to serve God and to be a part of God's church and to, most importantly, extend mercy to people? My question to that person would be, are you reading your Bible? Because I don't think you are. Because if you're reading your Bible, you are dodging every single page that tells you how privileged you are and how, how by the mercy of God you've been saved. 
if you have read a single page of the New Testament, you have been hit one verse after another at how it's a miracle that you're saved and how it's by the grace and mercy of God that you're saved. So if you're reading your Bible and you're sitting at Jesus' feet like you ought to be, then you know what mercy is. And there's something in you that was like in, that, in the heart of the leopard that says, I'm not doing the right thing, am I? Remember, there was a Pharisee named Simon who had a big party, so Jesus would come over. And the story goes that it was a big party outside, and the way parties were back in the ancient, uh, ancient Israel were the people would have, the, rich people would have these big uh, outdoor parties on their patios, and people would come and go, and the gates were open, so really anybody could come because the people wanted to show off and wanted just to be able to say, look at all the people that have come to my party. And, and sometimes people would come in that you didn't invite. But on this occasion, Simon the Pharisee who threw this party, he was hoping this would happen. So Jesus is sitting there with Simon the Pharisee, and while they're talking, a sinful woman shows up. Probably someone, a part of a pretty promiscuous lifestyle. A sinful woman shows up, and she begins to anoint Jesus' feet with a very costly perfume that she only could have obtained through money that someone like her shouldn't have had, but probably because of her lifestyle, she had. She takes this oil, oil and anoints his feet and then begins to wash his feet with her hair. And everybody in the, in the room, everybody in, on the patio was just completely shocked. Simon, it, 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 the Bible says, is seething. He is angry. I mean, he's cussing and thinking, man, what is this guy? Who is this guy? I can't believe he's letting her do this. Does he not know who she is, what she is? So Jesus says, Simon, I have something to say to you. Simon says, do you now? Go ahead. Take your best shot. Say it, teacher. And Jesus said, a certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of, them will, which of them will love him more? Or which of them will feel in their heart a greater love for the master, for the money lender? Simon says, okay, well, I, I guess, I suppose it's the one for whom he canceled the larger debt. And Jesus says, you have answered Correctly, you have judged rightly. He says, Simon, do you see this woman? And Simon says, of course I see this woman. Everybody sees this woman. Jesus, what are you doing? Why are you letting her literally touch your feet? What are you, do you understand your reputation on the line, Jesus? Jesus said, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water to wash my feet, yet she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but the time, from the time I came in, she's not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, they're forgiven. For she loved much. Now, let me clarify something real quickly. Jesus is not saying that if you sin more and you're forgiven of more, you're going to love God more. He's trying to make a point to Simon. That if you think your sin is so insignificant that God doesn't care about it, if you think your sin is so small but their sin is so great, you've missed the point completely. She knows what she is. And she knows it's by the mercy of God that she's going to get saved. That's why she loves me so much. You think your sin are just a little bit offensive. 
And that's why you don't love God that much. Man, that's pretty heavy, isn't it? So my response to someone who doesn't feel compelled to be involved in ministry that gives, that, that doesn't see the purpose in giving and serving and loving and caring and extending mercy, my response is, if you read your Bible and start taking to Jesus, talking to Jesus about salvation, and you let the Holy Spirit start dealing with your heart, you'll understand how you got saved and how you remain saved. Now, turn back to 2 Corinthians as we wrap up. Now, Paul, Paul's determination was a foregone conclusion. If there's anybody who's well aware of the mercy that saved him, it's Paul. I mean, remember what he said, he said to Timothy? This is a saying uh, a tr a tr that is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance or full adoption. Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Paul says every one of us should adopt this statement. Yet God sent Jesus to save me, and I'm the foremost, I'm the chief of sinners. And he says this, I received mercy for this reason. So why did you receive mercy? Why did I receive mercy? So that Christ could display his perfect patience, so that we could have this ministry of making a difference in the world for the Lord and impacting people's lives by extending the mercy that God has given us. So Paul's point here isn't just to compel us to begin serving the Lord, it's to encourage us who already have been serving the Lord. That's why he ends that verse saying, we do not lose heart. Because can I just say this, that a lot of people lose heart when they try to serve the Lord. A lot of you have lost heart. You know what lose heart means? To give up, to get frustrated, to get tired. So many people quit ministry. And I don't, I don't just mean preaching. I'm, I'm talking from pulpits to door holding. So many people quit ministry simply because they lose heart. They get discouraged. They get frustrated. And where Paul takes this, they shift their goals and they don't see the value of it anymore. Because the, da the danger... The danger in all of our ministries is we lose focus of why we are in ministry. Why is Paul telling us we're in ministry? Because we've received mercy, so we extend mercy. But so many people, because this is how the devil works, so many people begin to, begin to see the ministry that God has given them access to as, hey, how does this benefit me? It becomes all about economics. It becomes all about return of investment. Is this really worth it? I mean, are they really giving me or doing, being nice to me in return to me being nice to them? Are they responding to me? Or am I making anything off of this? Am I getting any kind of you know, profit? I don't just mean monetarily profit, but hey, is my ego getting stroked? Is my name getting you know, some attention? Is my wallet getting thicker? We all have fallen victim to this that we think, hey, ministry isn't worth it because there's not a return of the investment. Now, listen, by no means am I saying it's not worth it. My point is, Paul is telling us the gains in ministry are on a different level. Fulfillment does not come from worldly prophets or fleshly uh, pride. Fulfillment comes spiritually and on a kingdom basis. And that's why Paul makes this bold statement in verse 2. We have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. 
Paul says, hey, y'all, we, we, we are going to give up in this. I know why you're tempted to give up. You're tempted to give up because you've moved the goalpost. You've changed the motives or you've moved your motivation. Let me say this as, as bluntly as I can. If we're holding God's word and we only intend on serving him when it's convenient or expedient or profitable, that's what it means to handle God's word deceitfully. As in, hey, I've got it, but it's not talking to me. Hey, the Bible says we shall go and tell the world about Jesus and serve people and love people and give to pe do for people. Well, that's not to me. Because, hey, if you knew my story, you would know that I'm excused from it. If you knew my story, you would know that God does not expect me to do that. Because I tried for a little while, and I lost heart, and I gave up. But what does Paul say in verse 1? We do not lose heart. As in, that's not an option. We don't quit. A lot of people quit. One of the most repeated offenses in the kingdom of God is that we become motivated by worldly and fleshly shameful, crafty means. And I'm, we do, this happens subtly. Not enough people showed up. I didn't make anything out of it, off of it. I don't really feel good because of it. So I'm not going to do it anymore. We will face temptation of frustration and discouragement because people don't always respond to the ministry efforts we put in. And God's word says to us, welcome to the team. It's okay to be frustrated, but don't quit because of it, because there's too much on the line. Listen, I don't make light of this. I've been doing this for 13 years from, from a pulpit like this, and I was involved in ministry when I was a teenager in my home church before that. Ministry can be demoralizing. Ministry can be heartbreaking. But the Bible is full of stories we can relate to. Moses, the man that parted the Red Sea, the man that gave the miracles to Israel, that preached the word to Israel. Moses, at one point in his life, was very, very tired of it. And he wanted to quit. And actually, it was even worse than that. Numbers 11, verse 10 says, Moses said to the Lord, Why have you dealt ill with your servant? Why have I not found favor in your sight that you lay the burden of all these people on me? This is about 30 years into the 40-year journey. God said, Moses, I'm done, God. These people, listen to this next verse, how he compared, what he uh, says God is expecting of him. Did I conceive these people? Did I give birth to them that you should say to me, carry them in your bosom as a nurse carries a child? God, it's like you've given me a couple hundred thousand babies. I didn't sign up for this. I like the Red Sea. I like the miracles. I love the revelation on the mountain. But I did not sign up to be a nanny in the desert. That's not fun. And he didn't just say, I quit. And, and listen, Moses was very depressed. I mean, there's no other way to put this. He says, God, if you will treat me like this, kill me at once. I mean, that, I mean that's, that's pretty heavy words, right? He didn't just say, I quit. He says, God, I don't want to live anymore. Again, I don't make light of that. But that's what ministry did to Moses. No, God gave him some help. God helped him get through this because there wasn't a quit. There wasn't an option to quit. Remember Jeremiah? Jeremiah was a prophet to Israel for 60 years and didn't lead one person to God. Nobody listened. And God actually told Jeremiah, 
He told them in Jeremiah 7, listen, they did not listen to me or incline their ear but stiffen their neck. They did worse than their fathers. So you shall speak these words to them, but they will not listen to you either. Jeremiah, I know you've just been doing this for a few years now, but get buckle up for, for 50 more years of it because they're not going to listen to you. You think, why did he tell him that? He tell, told Jeremiah that to make it clear that ministry is worth it no matter the results because you're doing it for the Lord and you're doing it because of how God has treated you. You hear that? Nobody, a preacher that I think so much of set me down when I was just 19 years old and he told me, he said, Justin, Jeremiah did not win anybody to God. I was preaching out of Jeremiah that night at Holsgrove to the youth. And he said, do you know how many people Jeremiah led to the Lord? And, and I knew, I, I, I knew, I, was, I, I knew a little bit back then. I, I, I said, huh. He said, are you willing to do this even if you never lead anybody to Jesus? Is Jesus so glorious and so worth it that you would do it? even if nobody responded, even if your ego never got stroked, even if you never felt good in your flesh about what you were doing, would you still do it? God told Jeremiah this because God could see the future, but listen, Jeremiah's, Jeremiah's ministry is far beyond his earthly life. His book has been preaching ever since, and I'd say he's led a few people to Jesus, don't you? But he didn't see it in the moment. Jeremiah tried to quit. But Jeremiah said in his own confession, I, will, I said I will mention him no more, but there is, a, there is in my heart as it were a burning fire and I cannot hold it in. I cannot quit. Listen to how Paul brings this to us in verse three. Even if our gospel is veiled, if our gospel is hidden, it is veiled to those who are perishing. It's veiled or hidden to those that are lost. So there's two things here. If, our God, if we hold back our gospel, then that's a shot that someone does not get. If we hide our gospel from people, then they don't hear the gospel and they might not ever hear it. But also, if we present our gospel and they don't listen, that's not a knock on what you presented. That's not a, the fault of your service. That just is proof of the death grip the devil has on this world. Verse 4 whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. So Satan is hard at work to keep people blinded. He never takes a day off. He knows he has but a short time. And Paul says that's why we cannot quit. So what's your excuse? A lot of people have some good excuses. I don't think they hold water to this, do you? Verse 5, Paul reigns us back in with our excuses and our frustrations. He reminds us the reason we do this. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves as bondservants for Jesus' sake, as the bondservants of the church. He says, your bondservants, as in those that he is reaching out to. If somebody rejects us, you can't take it personally. If someone's ungrateful or unfazed by your efforts to love them and serve them, you can't take it personally because what did you lose? What did you lose? You say, well, I lost a lot. My feelings got hurt. I, got, I spent a lot of time and money. Listen, 
Jesus is our great reward. Our flesh will make it about us in a heartbeat. Every pastor gets their ego checked every single week. You pour yourself out and most people are arms crossed and still saying, what else you got? And y'all know what that's like. Every preacher, every door holder, every servant, every dollar you give, every minute you serve, every resource you donate. Listen, if it's not all dedicated to Jesus and you have your own flesh in there at all, if you have your own personal gain tied in there at all, you will lose your reward. Because if you make it anything but, but anything about Jesus or anything but about Jesus, you're setting yourself up to losing your reward. I tell people all the time, do it for Jesus. Let him sort the results out, but let him be your reward. Let him be your joy. Let him be your blessing. If we are waiting for people to make it worth our time, you'll be waiting a while. And I say that as someone who is greatly appreciative of people like y'all, who say such kind things to me and do things for me in response to my service. But at the end of the day, I can't live by those things. I live by Jesus as my joy and as my treasure, as my prize, because he's the only one that can make this worth it. Lest I find some reason to quit. Verse six, for it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness. He's commanded you and me to let our light shine. Who has shown in our hearts. So he says, God has commanded us to shine into darkness because he has first shined his light in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. That's a lot of words to say we have in our hearts a special connection to God that should make us motivated to always keep shining to the world. Jesus said in Matthew 5, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people put, light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. Church, we are called to be lights in the world. There's no reason that we can, no excuse we can give as to why we turn our lights off. But if we stay connected to Jesus, he is our reward. He refreshes us. He replenishes us because his light has shined into our hearts first. This is, this is one of the most, church, I say this confidently. These six verses are some of the most important verses that you as a Christian, as an aspiring servant for the Lord, these six verses are some of the most important verses for you to set to memory because they show you how you can guard your heart from the enemy. It makes it clear that we're called to serve, be involved in church. It safeguards us with a mindset that keeps our participation pure and purposeful. And verse 6 is an important reminder that we best allow the God we preach to be our peace, lest the struggles of ministry cause us to lose heart. Think back to the story of Mary and Martha. Remember how one served God or served Jesus and was frustrated that not everybody was pulling as much weight. And there her sister was just sitting at Jesus' feet. Got a little aggravated about that. But Jesus says, Martha, Martha, you were anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion. As in Mary knows where her reward is. So she's got to make sure she spends enough time at Jesus' feet. Martha, you're about to lose your reward because you kind of made it all about you. 
We're called to shine, make no mistakes, but we remember that our light, the light came from the Lord, and it's what is transforming our own hearts. Christians, so many Christians are grumpy and tired and burnt out. They've made this into a laborious, burdensome task. Listen, it is urgent that we go and preach and serve, but if we go about it in the wrong spirit, nobody wins. Nobody gains anything. So I guess we close this message by calling back to the beginning. We've got to stay in our Bibles and we've got to stay at Jesus' feet so that the gospel retains the sweet savor in our soul, so that our ministries continue causing a sweet aroma in the world. There is so much on the line, but if we lose our own joy in the process, then our work's going to do no good. Our own joy is important for the world to hear the gospel. It all comes back to the simple place of staying in step with Jesus and us continuing to serve him and find the joy that comes from exalting his name. His light has come to us, so it should go to others. But let us not forget what it's done for us and how it saved us because that's the secret in us keeping our faith. Hebrews 12 verse 2 says, Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter. Listen, don't compare yourself to other people. Don't look over there. Don't look over there. Don't, don't get frustrated when the results don't match the input or the efforts. Looking to Jesus, the author and the finisher, the one who started your faith and the one you're going to stand in front of one day. He is your reward. Do not lose heart. It's worth it because he is with you and he will make it worth it every moment of every day. So stay at his feet. Trust him. Pray to him. Be replenished by his mercy. Don't quit. There's too much on the line to quit. Let me pray for you. Father, I love you. Thank you so much for the encouragement that you give us through your spirit. Thank you that, Lord, when all the world, the world gives us so many reasons to grow wearied and so many reasons to get tired and so many reasons to give up, Lord, you remind us what mercy has done for us and why it's so important that we continue to extend mercy to others. Lord, thank you for the good news. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for giving us this ministry that motivates us to continue to preach the gospel. But may the God we preach be our peace. And may Jesus be our great reward. Let us not trade that for nothing. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.